All right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, it is Emily um, and Danielle. And Danielle. Um, welcome back to another episode of Midwest Madness, your true crime, cult, conspiracy, encrypted podcast. And Did, we're back. We already say our names. I, yeah, you said I'm oh. Emily, and then I said and I'm Danielle, and then you said and Danielle. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> All right. Like, All right. We're just really gonna introduce me tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. It's my turn to tell the story. Yes, it is. And I think we should get right into it because, oops, mine's 14 pages long. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Mine is not that long. I have to be honest. I wrote this whole thing during work today and I just got really into it because I was like oh my god this is making the work day go fast so you know what you do what you gotta do I guess right yeah I started writing it last night and then I thought I started not feeling good so then I went to bed so that I feel like sounds like a good choice yep I also feel like I sound kind of funny today like very hoarse and I'm not entirely sure why so sorry if I sound weird it's I fine. feel fine okay um perfect so i think we should just get into it today okay um so today's story takes place in a small border town in wisconsin called hudson okay hudson is located on the wisconsin minnesota border and is just about 25 short minutes from the twin cities hudson is a river town nestled right on the banks of the saint croix river downtown hudson is a bustling place with many cute shops good restaurants and fun bars now, back in two the February 2002, when our story takes place, Hudson had a population of about 10,000 people. Um, I tried to find crime rates back then, but I couldn't really find much. Okay. But I would say, like, Hudson nowadays kind of has a eh, reputation, I would say. Yeah, I, I mean... There's been some, like, violent crime there recently, um, but that, I think, was because during COVID, Wisconsin was open and Minnesota was not. Yeah. So a lot of people were going to Hudson, since it's so close to the cities, yeah. to, like, party and stuff. Yeah. and, like, go to bars. Yeah, and I think it created some, like, bad crime, but... Yep, that I would make sense. Do you know that there isn't a lot of history of violent crimes and in 2002 there hadn't been a murder in Hudson in over 24 years I'm literally trying to think of what this is and I I had no idea idea. yeah I've never seen I had never seen anything about this before to be fair in 2002 I would have been turning 12 yeah and so you would have been turning nine. Yeah. So it's not like we really were up to date on our on our true crime stats no. at that age. No. Um, now, Hudson, I would say, is like a very family-friendly community, like a good place to raise your kids. Okay. Um, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> now, let's talk about the two people that our story is about. Um, Dan O'Connell was part owner of... The only funeral home in town, O'Connell Family Funeral Home, uh, was ran by his father, Thomas O'Connell, his brother, Mike O'Connell, and himself. Okay. Dan was married to a woman named Jenny, and they had two kids aged seven and nine. Dan was a re- well-respected member of the community, and many people knew him from the funeral home. 
Uh, they stated that the way he was with like grieving, grieving families made a difficult time a little bit easier. That is a job that I definitely could not handle. Yeah, me neither. I'm way too like empathetic. Yeah. <laughs> like if something sad happens on a TV show, I also cry. Right. So. Um, he was also very involved with his kids' activities. He was a volunteer EMT and was involved in many different fundraisers around the area. Dan and his brother, oh my gosh, um, Mike, I believe his name yeah, was. Yeah, Mike. Dad was Tom. I wrote Matt for some reason. Actually <laughs> raised $25,000 for the families of 9-11 first responders who were killed in the 9-11 terror attack. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, now, the second person is James Ellison, and he was a 22-year-old student studying mortuary at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He was set to graduate in the spring of 2002, so that spring. Okay. Um, he had gotten an internship at the O'Connell's family, family funeral home in Hudson and was excelling there. It, and that's like a normal practice for a mortician. Yeah, you right? have to have kind to of like, yeah, you have to okay. do this. It, that's what they made it seem like. Okay. Um, it was said that after college, he was set to offer full-time employment from the O'Connell family. Okay, so clearly he's done a good job. Yes. Um, he was from the small town of Barron, Wisconsin, which is about an hour and a half from Hudson. And Barron is um, popular for the Jamie Klaus. Oh. I think that's her name. Um, A podcast I listened to literally did that. I thought about doing it, but I'm like, oh my God, she, it's, she's still like so young and it's so recent. Yeah. I just feel like it's and maybe it, something we shouldn't just touch I, at this point yeah i feel like you're right because she's still under 18 isn't she oh my, she was 12 when it happened yeah, so it was she's like what three two or two two or three years ago I would yeah say. something like that. 2018 maybe yeah so i'm just like i'm gonna i, I feel like that's stick like away from that part. one yeah. um he was one of three kids his parents were karsten and sally ellison um, he had one brother, Jordan, and one sister, Julia. Okay. He was involved with things like the golf team, 4-H, and church activities. He went to UW-River Falls for the first two years of college before transferring to the University of Minnesota for his last two years. Um, he was remembered as the type of guy who had a hard time saying no to people because he didn't want to let them down. Okay. Um, so here's my here's my dilemma. I don't want to be like cheering for either of these people yet because like I don't have any idea what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen? And one of them could turn out to be like a really terrible person. Yeah. So I don't really. Oh, he sounds like a really nice guy. Right. Right. Because like one of them probably isn't. Right. <laughs> um. So now that we know a little bit about Dan O'Connell and James Ellison, let's go ahead and get into the story. Okay. So on February 5th, 2002, in the early afternoon, St. Croix County Medical Officer Marty Shanklin headed over to the O'Connell family funeral home to get a death certificate signed. When he arrived at 1.40 p.m., he walked right in and straight to the back of the building towards Dan's office because he, like, he knew where he was going. He had been yeah. there multiple times before. Um, when he walked in, he found a terrible scene. There sitting behind the desk was Dan O'Connell. He had been shot once in the head. Next to the door, slumped over a chair, was James Ellison, also dead. Marty was nervous that the person who committed these crimes could still be in the building, so immediately exited and called the police. That is exactly what I would do, too. I'd be like, yeah. I'm going to just back out of yeah. here. <laughs> when the police arrived, they entered the funeral home, guns drawn, and searched the whole building, but the only two people inside were Dan and James. 
The police believe that the shootings were random and that there was no threat to the community at the time. They did call in a priest right away um, to bless the bodies in the funeral home before they removed them. Um, Father Ryan Erickson, who was the priest at the Catholic Church the O'Connells attended, immediately went over to the O'Connells to consult the family. Um, so the weird thing about that to me, about the police being like, this is a random shooting. Who does a random shooting at a funeral home? Or maybe I, I meant to write it wasn't random. Okay. Because so like, you would think if it wasn't random, there would be no... There was like there there was no threat to the public. Okay. You know what I'm trying to say, yeah, right? Like, like it was a targeted attack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I was like, that doesn't make sense because it the last one of the last places i'm gonna go to get money is a funeral home. is a funeral home i'm gonna hit a bank a target or you know like somewhere or well probably not a target that'd be too big but you know somewhere that i know they're gonna have a good chunk of, cha- of change yeah i guess i don't know what but not you're th- not you're not thinking of one thing and i will get to that but we'll get to that okay okay so Tuesday had turned out to be a pretty normal start to the day for Dan O'Connell. He had a meeting that morning in Baldwin, Wisconsin, which is about 22 miles from Hudson. At around 9.45 he, a.m., he left this meeting, then headed back to Hudson, stating he had another meeting scheduled at his office there. Um, no one knows who this meeting was with, unfortunately. James also had a somewhat normal morning i guess you could say he attended classes at the u of m then headed to hudson for work he had actually talked to his family that morning stating he was excited for the work day which kind of breaks my heart because like he was just he loved what he did and he was like you know on the right career path and yeah Yeah. so that that doesn't happen for everybody you know like knowing what you want to do yeah especially in your early 20s now, James' family believed that he wasn't the intended target of the killings, but was sort of in a wrong place at the wrong time situation. Which is even sadder. Yeah. The murders were said to be committed between 1.08 and 1.23 p.m. because Dan had made an outgoing call at about 1.07. A call to James' cell phone went unanswered around 1.20, and a call to the funeral home went unanswered around at about 1.30, and we know that the bodies were found around 1.45. I was going to say, that's a very specific time frame. Like, yeah. But that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the Hudson Police Department did call in the FBI and the Wisconsin State, Depart- State Department of Justice to help with the case. So let's get into some, like, early theories. Um, police originally looked to see if this could have been a murder-suicide situation. Uh, but because no gun was found on the scene, this was immediately ruled out. Um, there's another early theory that there is this like cult-like ministry, of course, of course, it's who a cult. had been threatening Wisconsin funeral homes over their embalming practices, um, and they had come in and killed Dan and Jane. And what when a weird thing to, they thought that the way that. These and they had actually like sent letters to like multiple funeral homes about it, and they one of the funeral homes was this funeral home, but it, they thought that the way that they embalmed them like made them like disintegrate essentially, and they thought that they should just be wrapped in cloth and buried. So they want mummification rather pretty than much, embalming. yeah. Um, Interesting. So they thought that they could have come in and killed Dan, and then when James had heard the sound. 
um, and had come to investigate. He was shot and killed as well. But again, this theory was pretty quickly ruled out. Um, Police originally looked to see if this could have been a... Oh, shoot. I already read that. Um, (laughs) There had also been a number of burglaries in St. Paul at funeral homes shortly before the murders. They were stealing formaldehyde, which is sometimes put into cannabis to make it stronger. Uh, Yeah. So you were forgetting about the drug situation. Because I don't do Do drugs. drugs, Yeah. (laughs) I'm more money motivated. Yeah. uh, Clearly. But um, again, this was ruled out because nothing was missing from the funeral home. Another possible theory that was that the two could have been possibly killed by a man named Stephen Neal, who was an escaped criminal wanted for triple homicide in the state of Arkansas. A month before the murders, his two accomplices were arrested outside of an apartment building in Hudson, but Stephen Neal was still on the run. Police didn't know if Neal was possibly in Hudson as well, so they theorized that maybe he committed the murders. Again, what's the motivation there, though? Like, but there was absolutely nothing tying him to the funeral home. Exactly. And no like sightings of Neil had been reported in the Hudson area. That's my thing, too. It's like, why? I'm yeah. assuming he wouldn't just, like, kill people for no reason. Right. But that's a... But I don't know I what the triple homicide was. I... This is long enough, this long enough, so I yeah. wasn't going to, like, look into that, too, and yeah, see. Yeah, that's fair. Because that could have been random. Like, who knows? That's true. That's true. Um... Police also looked into an unsolved murder of a retired mortician in Iowa that had been committed five years earlier. But again, there was really no similarities between the two cases besides they both were morticians. Okay. Um, so again, this theory is quickly abandoned. Police asked the public if anyone had driven by the funeral home the day of the murders and seen anything unusual or maybe if they had like seen anyone parked in the parking lot or you know just around the building yeah anything yeah one witness did come forward stating that they had seen a silverish white four-door sedan parked in the parking lot in the late morning early afternoon hours and that's like pretty much all police had to go on man i could have been a suspect if i lived in Hudson and was driving the car i drive now literally (laughs) um about three months after the murders police hadn't made any progress in the case since the early stages this is when the families decided to put up a $100,000 reward that lead, that led to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator or perpetrators. Okay. Um, and the $100,000 is actually raised by the community of Hudson. Oh, yeah. that's nice. They were hoping that this would help persuade people to come forward, but unfortunately, it did not. I had a bad feeling that might be the, the case. So how are, how are you feeling so far? I I feel like it's definitely someone who knows at least one, if not both, of our victims. Because otherwise it just feels too random. random. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of am leaning towards jealousy being a motive. Okay. Um, or something to do with the career that they're in. Okay. That's where I'm, I'm at right now. I just was curious. Yeah. Okay. So the first anniversary of the killings came and went with no new leads in the case. That always makes me so sad for the poor families, too. Like, the, Yeah. The police had been working this case around the clock, like, full time, so it never went to, like, the wayside. But wow. unfortunately, they weren't able to make any progress. Both families believed at this point that one of the men, whether it be James or Dan, were the intended target for the crime. Okay, so we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. Families. <laughs> and the other was killed 
So no witnesses would be left behind. Okay. They also both believe that no matter what the reason, it was probably a stupid and senseless one. Despite the police working on the case full time, another whole year passed without any progression in the case. So whoever did this has kept their mouth shut. Apparently. Which is where I would trip up. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to kind of get into... Is this who, solved? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is just a good fashion, old classic okay. murder. I mean, not good, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So here we go. Now we have a suspect that evolves. Okay. And it's going to just kind of come out of nowhere. In early 2004, a new detective, Sean Patti, I believe is how you say his last name, joined Sergeant Larson and Detective Knops on the case. Sean had known Dan since they were kids, and he had promised Dan's wife, Jenny, that he would do everything he could to bring Dan and James' killers to justice. Um, one day, Detective Knops was looking through some old files where he came across something that piqued his interest. In March of 2003, so a year and a month after the murders, a man named Tom Smith, which is not his real name, um, it's a pseudonym, had gone to his local police station in Bismarck, North Dakota, to report something that had happened to him when he was a teen in his hometown in Wisconsin. In 1999, 15-year-old Thomas was training to be an altar boy at St. Anne's Parish in Somerset, Wisconsin, which is about 20 or so minutes from Hudson. I wish you could see Daniel's face right now. I don't know if I like where this is going. <laughs> well, there he met 26-year-old seminary intern named Ryan Erickson. A year later, Father Erickson became a priest and was assigned to St. Patrick's Church in Hudson. Then 16-year-old Thomas got into some minor trouble with the law and was assigned community service to be completed under Father Erickson's supervision. Father Erickson at the time was living at a house just adjacent to the... Uh, St. Patrick's Church. So, like, it was called the rectory, like yeah, a rectory. Yep, yeah, that's yeah. Usually, especially Catholic churches yeah. will provide housing. That's yep, close. So that makes where sense. he lived with other priests and pastors from St. Patrick's Church. When Thomas would visit Father Erickson at the rectory, he would give Thomas beer and liquor, which he had in like his room in like a model globe. And he's sixteen at this point. Yeah, Tom, quote unquote Thomas. Thomas yep. The two would play drinking games, which included Thomas taking shots whenever he lost. Thomas stated that sometimes he would drink so much that we would throw up or pass out. Thomas also hinted to the police that other inappropriate behavior had incurred, but the main point of the report was the underage drinking. On April 8, 2003, the report was forwarded to the Hudson Police Department, because, but because the report focused mainly on someone supplying alcohol to a minor, the report went mainly unnoticed. Okay. Um, when Knops read the report in 2004, he decided to reach out to Thomas Smith to get more information. And he was the O'Connell's pa- or priest, right? Yes, he was okay. the one who went to their house okay, and consoled his wife. That's what I thought. I just wanted to double check that. He also spoke at his funeral. Oh. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> the detective and Thomas sat down and dove deeper into the complaint. Thomas stated that during their drinking sessions, the pair would often lay side by side in bed in just their box boxer shorts discussing topics like masturbation. Father Erickson told Thomas that he often got drunk and participated in orgies. Um, as a priest, I don't think that's what... I was going to say, super priestly behavior there, sir. Yeah. 
We also, he also didn't like that Thomas had a girlfriend and often tried to get Thomas to break up with her and join the priesthood instead. On approximately 10 occasions, Father Erickson had groped his genitals and tried to intertwine their legs together. Although these assaults had never escalated to intercourse, Thomas did admit that he often was so drunk that he couldn't remember exactly what had happened the night before the next day. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Um, Thomas hadn't realized that Father Erickson hadn't realized what Father Erickson was doing was wrong until he took a psychology class in college and the course described how predators groomed their victims. Um, that's what prompt like prompted okay. him to go so, speak to the police in Bismarck. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna. I was actually gonna ask because I was like, that seems so random that all of a sudden he'd be like, "I need to go." Yeah, this so now. that's what prompted okay. it. That makes more sense. For the detective, speaking to Thomas was crucial because this showed that there was someone who lived in Hudson at the time of Dan and James' murders who had something to hide. Father Erickson was well known for having extremely conservative views, so much so that the pastor at St. Patrick's Church immediately took notice of it. His sermons would mainly focus on sexual sins, and he often cried at the altar while he was preaching. He do you, sorry, do you know what the difference between a priest and a pastor the is? The pastor is like the head honcho, and the priest is like under the pastor. Okay. Cause like that's all I know. Okay, because like in the Lutheran Church, we don't have priests. Yeah, we, but have, we pastors. have pastors. So I, I just thought I always thought that Catholic churches only had priests. Me too, but but apparently not. Apparently not. Okay, well Catholics let us. Yeah, <laughs> I could be totally wrong, but we, that's what it made it seem like. Because there's this like part which I'll get to, where um the pastor gets sick and the and he's like I hope when he dies I get to become the pastor. So that makes it seem like, like yeah, he's he's a step below below him. So that's yeah, why that I assume sense. that. Um, okay. He denounced. Wrong, let us know. <laughs> yeah, he denounced those who he called quote lukewarm Catholics end quote. It actually got so bad that one of the elderly m- members of the church grew so tired of his crying that she confronted him during one of his outbursts, asking him, "Aren't you overdoing it a bit?" And apparently he just like immediately stopped crying. <laughs> what a badass. Yeah. She was like, She's like I'm, I'm sorry, fucking I'm over this. Over your dramatics. Yeah. Get a grip. Um, I'm sure you can guess that most of the modern worshipers at St. Patrick's did not like Fair- Father Erickson, but many of the conservative worshipers did. Um, there was a school attached to the church and unfortunately Father Erickson was in charge of sex ed at the school can kind of guess how that went um in a weekly newsletter that he sent out to churchgoers he condoned masturbation and actually called out female members of the church stating quote even sunday mass isn't safe from the unmodest dress of some devils unquote and then it literally go he like literally went on and like wrote like they like they probably know that men see their beautiful bodies and go home and masturbate to them but they probably like that like just like weird shit um just for the record ew yeah um (laughs) weird so gross um father erickson also had a passion for firearms and one conservative member of the church actually gifted him a nine millimeter handgun that he would wear under his church robes this guy sounds like a whack job yeah 
One of the pastors got ill, and Father Erickson told the congregation that he was sick because he had a, quote, demon inside of him. Great. And that was the one where he was like, I hope he dies. If he dies, I hope I get, like, promoted to pastor or whatever. probably poisoning him. Who knows? Um... It got so bad that members of the congregation complained to the bishop in charge of St. Patrick's Church. So it sounds like there's like a bishop who's in charge of like multiple churches in the area. And the Lutheran Church has that as well. Two? Okay. Um, It's of regions. Okay. It could be, the the bishop could be in charge of like the churches in the lower Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. The bishop met with Father Erickson and told him he needed to tone down his behavior. In 2004, the detectives working on the double homicide decided it was time to maybe speak with Father Erickson. At this time, he had moved to St. Mary's Church, which was located in Hurley, Wisconsin, which is like about an hour and a half away. Okay. Um, they told Father Erickson that they wanted to talk to him solely because he was the priest at the church that Dan had attended. Um, Father Erickson welcomed the detectives into the rectory that he was currently staying at to chat, and one of the first things they noticed was that globe filled with alcohol that Thomas Smith had talked about in his police interview. So they're so like, okay, already like red flag, red corroborating flag. the story a little bit. Well, and if he did it to that one kid, you can't trust that he's not going to do it to another one. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um... Father Erickson theorized to detectives that the mafia could have been involved with the crimes because he heard that Dan's father had been associated with the mafia previously until the group had turned against him. Just, I don't know where he pulled that one probably right out of his ass. (laughs) Um, When the detectives asked Father Erickson where he was the day of the murders, he said he had been out buying cigars and returned to the church around 3 p.m. where his secretary informed him of the murders. Father Erickson decided to go to the scene of the crime and see if someone needed to perform the victim's last rites, but when he got there, he was denied entry, so he went to console Dan's wife, Jenny, instead. Do you think he went to try and do last rites just in case his DNA or anything was there? I don't know. And then he could be like, oh, well, yeah, I performed last rites. Maybe. I don't know. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. I hate this guy. About an hour. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, God. About an hour into the interview with detectives, Father Erickson started to speculate about how the bodies had been found, stating that he thought James was found by the door and Dan had been sitting behind his desk and that each man had been only shot once. What a dumb ass. Now, this really piqued detectives' interest because this information purposely had been kept out of the public's knowledge. So they were like, hmm, how do you, how do you, how do you know that? Freaking dummy. When asked how he knew that information, he told them that he had either heard it from the priest who went and anointed the bodies or that one of Dan's family members had told him. Mm -hmm. After the interview, they asked if they could take his handguns for examination, which Father Erickson agreed to. Forensic analysis showed that none of these handguns matched the ones used in the killings. The priest who anointed the bodies, as well as Dan's family members, all adamantly denied that they had ever told Father Erickson anything about how the bodies were found. And there is also that silver white car, remember? Yes. Which matches Father Erickson's car. Um, the detectives requested a search warrant for Father Erickson's rectory, then asked him to attend a follow-up interview, which he agreed to. When the second interview started, Father Erickson became increasingly uncomfortable. 
Detectives were starting to lay it on pretty thick at this point, continuing to ask how he, he knew how the bodies were found, um, which this time he replied it was like town gossip. Um, father, you better, you dumb dumb. Yeah, like you dummy. <laughs> You're so stupid. Seriously. Um, he also stated... Oh, sorry. Uh, Father Erickson stated that he had committed, if he had committed these murders and was being cornered like this, he would obviously confess. He also stated that he had suicidal thoughts in the past, and if he had committed these murders, he would be having those suicidal thoughts now, too. During the search of the rectory, police found some intimate notes that suggested Father Erickson could have been in an intimate relationship with an individual, as well as a poem written in Father Erickson's handwriting that had racist remarks about African Americans on it. Sounds like a real stellar man. Just wait till you hear. A real man of God, M. One line stated that they would be massacred by, quote, fighting white boys from the four corners of the United States, end quote. So this guy, like, just, like, he fucking sucks, dude. Yeah, he does. <laughs> He's an idiot. Um, On his computer, police found a last will and testament that had been created four days after his first police interview and modified two days after his second police interview. Investigators confiscated his gun collection and gave it to the deacon for safekeeping and took about 22 other items of interest from the rectory. Now. So they took, okay, so 22 more things they took out of Yeah, like computers, his secretary's computer, like just, you know, I'm not going to listen. I don't know why that didn't process right at first, but it, it didn't, so. Um... When friends of Father Erickson from Hudson learned that he was being investigated for the murders of Dan and James, two of them decided to make the drive to Hurley to visit him just to make sure he was okay. Oh, yeah. Poor thing. On Friday, December 17th, they arrived and Father Erickson welcomed them into his home. On Saturday, they talked about the investigation and Father Erickson denied having anything to do with the murders. That night, the three of them went to dinner, returned to the rectory, and watched two movies before retiring to bed. The next morning, Richard, one of the two friends, got up at about 7.30 a.m. and greeted Father Erickson before getting ready for Mass. He then went to clean the snow off his car that had fallen the night before. Um, There, hanging from the roof that covered the walkway from the rectory to the church, was a body. Richard ran to the rectory and rang the bell, but then he spotted the church's maintenance worker, so he ran over to him and yelled that Father Ryan had killed himself. The maintenance worker replied that this wasn't possible and that it was more than likely a mannequin and that Father Erickson liked to play jokes. So Richard was like, cool, makes sense. Okay, the- so wait, so Father Ryan is a different No, priest. it's Father Ryan Erickson. Oh, okay. It's his full I got, name. I got confused. He sorry. calls it, he says Father Ryan, so I'm trying to stay okay. as true to his okay. words as possible. I'm glad I clarified then. Richard then went to the truck, removed the snow, went back to the rectory to tell Father Erickson to take the mannequin down. Inside, he found his Tom friend Tom, which is the other friend that came with him, but yeah. Father Erickson was obviously nowhere to be found. Richard and Tom went back outside to the mannequin, which they noticed had frost on it. Thinking to themselves that a mannequin wouldn't acquire frost, they ran back to the rectory, and there they found three notes and a ring that they had given Father Erickson two years prior. Police were called and confirmed that the body was that of Father Erickson. 
Um, at the same time, a news crew had actually pulled to the, up to the church to interview Father Erickson about the investigation into him, um, about the two murders, but were shocked to find that Father Erickson had died by suicide that very morning. Yikes. After his death... Real quick. I thought the first friend said good morning to him. He did. Then went to get ready for mass. So in that, like... 10 minutes of time or I don't know how long time. it took him to get ready for mass. He like That seems really strange. Well, like this is very straightforward. So we don't think too much no, into it. No, I it just feels strange like that he would do it then and not like when he knows he has plenty of time. I'm sure he thought he had plenty of time. Well, it doesn't clearly, take that long. I mean, clearly he did have plenty of time because yeah. he's dead, but Yeah. I I just it feels really almost like risky to me to i think we should just move on past okay. it sorry <laughs> after, hung up, hung, you hung are up on details after his death the church came out and stated that they didn't believe that father erickson had anything to do with the murders of dan o'connell and of james ellison his friend tom stated that father erickson was a man's man and although he doesn't think that he had anything to do with the murders he did believe that he had a quote sexual problem end quote that's pretty obvious. After Father Erickson's death, the investigation into him continued. Although many of his friends in Hudson refused to cooperate with police, many of the people they talked to painted a very different picture of Father Erickson than pe- the people or his friends in Hudson did. Okay. In high school, he was known as a bully and did some super awful, th- awful things to animals that I'm not going to talk about. Yeah, please. He also did some really shitty things to his rescue dog, which <laughs> I'm... Also not going to talk about. Thank you so much. Fucking douchebag. Um, serious when I need him. All right. He's ignoring us. Many people also reported seeing Father Erickson point a BB gun out the window of the rectory at churchgoers he didn't like. Yikes. He was also super racist, but um, we knew I that. Mean, we knew that. Yeah. During this time, they learned about other sexual interactions Father Erickson had with minors. Of course. Although some of these instances were reported to both police and church officials, Father Erickson was never charged or reprimanded. Again, not a huge shock, unfortunately. Some of the churchgoers at St. Patrick's and Hudson had even begun to notice that Father Erickson seemed to prefer young males. A search of his computer found images of prepubescent boys engaging in sexual acts. They also found pictures of boys sleeping in the rectory, both at St. Patrick's and St. Mary's Church. On the day of the murders, a nun came forward stating that around 2.30 or 2.45, Father Erickson had come and visited her, telling her that Dan and James had been both been shot. He had claimed to have been the one who went and anointed the bodies, but we know that that's not true. Police found this interesting because by this time, police hadn't notified the public about the murders of Father and Father Erickson had not been at St. Patrick's when they had phoned for a priest to come anoint the bodies. So how did he know that about the murders? Yeah, because he said he was out, and then he found out around 3 and went. Yeah. Hey, this dude. Yeah. About three weeks after his suicide, the deacon from St. Mary's Church actually sent a letter to the Hudson police. It stated that Father Erickson had visited him the day after his first interview with police. Father Erickson told him he was being investigated for the double homicide in Hudson. As the conversation went on, Father Erickson ended up confessing to the murders. This proof was this was enough proof 
for police that they had been on the right track all along, but one thing they still couldn't answer was why the father had targeted a funeral home director and an intern. For two more months, police uncovered more and more details. Hudson resident Mary Pagel eventually came forward and told police that on the morning of the murders, Mary had run into Dan at the Hudson Walmart and the two decided to have coffee together. As the two chatted, Dan asked Mary if she had ever seen Father Erickson touch a child in an inappropriate way. Um, she drove school bus for the Catholic school. Okay. Um, when Mary said she hadn't, he asked if he, she had noticed Father Erickson spending time with mainly young boys or young girls, or if it was like split evenly. And this to Mary applied young boys. Dan then revealed that he had a meeting scheduled with the priest for later that day. So was that the meeting that... Assuming, yes. Okay. I think so. Okay. In which he planned to confront him about an allegation that he had sexually assaulted a young boy. Mary told Dan that maybe he shouldn't consult... He should consult police first before talking to Father Erickson, but Dan assured her that he could take care of himself. After their coffee, Mary drove back to St. Patrick's, where she saw Father Erickson leaving dressed in jeans and a light-colored t-shirt. This was around 11.45 a.m. After the murders, Mary said she met with Dan's family and told him about the coffee the two had shared, but neglected to tell them about what he had said about Father Erickson. It wasn't until after Father Erickson's death did she realize that the two things could be linked. I suppose. Like, yeah. I'm not going to judge her too no, hard on that. I would like the shock of being like, oh my God, he's died. And then like, I'm assuming your first assumption isn't the priest. The, yeah. Yeah. The priest did it. Like I certainly wouldn't because like they seem like they're, you know, more, I don't know, more evolved. I don't, that's not right. But, yeah. Like. There's just, like, something about... Well, you, I think you just kind of hold them to, like, a, a higher, higher standard. standard. Yeah, there we go. That's yeah. what it is. Um, Thank you. Another local resident stated that although Father Erickson had told police that he hadn't seen Dan for over a week before the murders, he had told him that the two had a big argument the night before the murders. With this new information coming to light, police felt like they had enough um, to connect Father Erickson to the murders. On August 24th, 2005, the police chief of Hudson submitted all the information they had collected to the St. Croix County District Attorney so they could determine what the next step would be. Basically, what they did was have a John Doe hearing where the evidence was brought to a judge. I'm, I, I'm assuming they do this when, like, the person's died. Yeah. So they can still get a conviction. And like put the case and like officially close the case. Yeah, yeah. It not being a cold case. Yeah. Again, I didn't look super hard into this John Doe because I was like, this is already really long. Yeah. Like I don't want to like add to it. But yeah. um, a lot of the evidence eventually showed that the church knew about the sexual assault accusations against Father Erickson. <sighs> he went through many different evaluations with psychologists, and one one found him fit to continue in the priesthood. One found him not fit, and then because these two contradicted each other, they did one more, and the last one also found him fit to continue. I hope the ones that found him fit feel really bad about it. Yeah. He also gave many different stories about where he was the day of the murders, which didn't help, obviously. No. Um, As well as everything else I've already (laughs) talked about. Yeah. 
Um, it only took one day for the judge to find that there was enough evidence to convict Father Erickson of the murders. And after three long years, the families of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison finally had some answers. Thank God. And that... That was crazy. ...is the story of Dan Ellison, O'Connell and James Ellison. That was crazy. I know I, like, literally ran through that so quickly... But I did not want this to be super long. So I hope it all like. Well, and like, I didn't want to interrupt a lot. No. Because it was like. Well, there's so much going on. I just want to know every, like, I. Oh. Yeah. And we don't know who the kid was that he, that Dan thought the pastor or the priest was assaulting was, right? No. Well, no, we don't know. Okay. Because like, I, did, did he have kids? Yeah, he had kids, but I don't think they went to the Catholic church. Okay. Then why would they call... Or it? Catholic school, sorry. Oh, okay. They, so they did go to the church, they just didn't go to the school. Yeah. Okay. That you're aware of. Correct. God, that was crazy. Yeah. I can't believe neither of, it hurt, neither of us had heard of that, because that's not that far away. No, that's... Like an hour-ish, maybe? Not even. I would say 30 minutes. You think so? Yeah. Mm. I'm about... Well, I'm not going to say, but... <laughs> yeah, don't triangulate. Yeah. Location. location. But, yeah. So... There you go. That one was... A trip. Wow. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a lot of information and... Okay. You want my um, sources? Please. Yeah. Yes. Hope you guys like that, by the way. I'm, I'm just kind of like... I don't have a lot to say because <laughs> it's like shell-shocked. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like I kind of... Like, there's... I don't really think there's, like, much discussion around it. You know what no, I mean? No, it's pretty straightforward. Kind of open and shut. Yeah. Once you know who did yeah. it. It's kind of obvious. Um, I was way off on my guess. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have guessed this, too. So. Okay, good. Um, so, my first one is crusadeagainstclergyabuse.com. Um, my main one is the Case File podcast. Case uh, is episode 151. Um, that's where I got a lot of my information from. Okay. And then I got a bunch from newspapers.com. It's a bunch of different newspaper articles. Do you want me to read that's cool. each title? Yeah, I have a seven-day free trial. I'm going to immediately cancel it so I don't get charged. But <laughs> Yeah, you might as well give the newspapers the credit. Okay, just, just give so me a hot sec here. Um. The first one is the leader telegraph, telegram, sorry, okay. two killings random, funeral home partner intern shot to death by Pamela, Pamela Powers and Chuck Rupp now. Um, the next one, there's like five of them, so just. That's fine. Again, the leader's uh, telegram, leader telegram, not Bush set sights on Iraq. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> um no. Ministry accused of threats. So that's the ministry who is sending letters okay. to the slash cult. The, yeah. Um, okay. This just says yeah. by leader telegram staff. So okay. no one specific there. Next we have. I don't think these are all leader. Oh, uh, the Star Tribune. Okay. Um. Sorry, I'm trying to find the name. No, it's $100,000 reward in Hudson Slangs. Okay. So that's the reward. Next. You got a lot of sources. I know. Well, it was a big story. Yeah, it was a big story. 
is the leader telegram again. Um, former Hudson priest found dead in Hurley. And the last is probably the leader's telegram again. Give me one second. <laughs> the Capital Times. Okay. I'm assuming that's Madison. Um, judge says evidence shows priest killed two in Hudson. Okay. And that is that. So right. our socials are um, W Madness Podcast on Instagram. That is also our email, right? Yeah. And then Midwest Madness Podcast um, group on Facebook. And the email is a Gmail. Yep. So cool, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed this one. Um, I certainly did. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. Uh, if you have any story ideas, let us know. We'll be happy to do them. Just so you know, if you have sent in a story night idea and we haven't done it, it's more than likely because we can't find that much information on it. Yes, there have been a couple that I've been sent. And, like, basically the whole story is, like, five sentences long. Yeah, and unfortunately. So some You just can't find that much info on. And no. Um, I am thinking of doing just, like, a big hodgepodge at some point mm. of like here are a bunch of different stories that we've been sent i yeah. have a little information on all of them um kind of like your great lakes episode yeah but with listener suggestions got it because i really have looked at like four of them and it just i don't have enough information yeah. to do a full podcast on any of them so please don't Even be mad but so, yeah. and also keep sending us them because yeah. we do try and we do look into them and i mean i, I did one last week so yeah. all right guys um we're gonna cut this off now i know it's a little bit longer than our normal ones Thanks but with us. um i hope you enjoyed and i hope you have a great rest of your week um enjoy the weather if you're in minnesota enjoy the state fair we know we will well i will, will. now won't do the state fair. um but yeah thanks for listening bye